Hey, I have a question for you. Wasn't that a pretty okay. little intro, by the way? That was That lovely. was maybe one of my best lovely. musical good compositions job, ever. <laughs> this is a weird question, but I'm going to go there. Okay. I'm just going to go there. Do it. It's 2020. It's 2020. Anything could happen. What do you want? In your ideal world, what would you want to happen to your social media accounts when you die? Ugh. <laughs> okay, okay. I've actually thought about this. <laughs> yeah, because I had um, a close family friend die. And, oh. um, yeah. And I feel horrible now for laughing about yeah, it and for asking. Yeah, Thank you. Yeah, you're terrible. Um, yeah, and so I've had a chance to think about this a little bit mm-hmm. because they were not um, super old, mm-hmm. you know. So mm-hmm. you, um, so I think it's, yeah. So we're, and we're sort of in the, the early generations of having to manage this, right? right? You right. know, so um, I would say, so I have put on my, social media stuff i give my spouse permission to oh you did the spousal permission i need to put it like in my will or something which is we need to start thinking about this yeah i think i don't want people posting on Mm. it but i mean i know that that's a popular thing and maybe it's it's a way to grieve but i don't know it just for myself yeah but what about you i mean i feel like there's no not necessarily like a clear right or wrong. No. You know, you have to do you and grief is a, a complex thing. I know. Thing. I might very well want my social media stuff to just be flat out deleted. Yes. I think that's what I would want. But I wouldn't want to take that away from people who wanted to remember me that way. That's the hard thing, right? Okay. So I actually have a memory about this and I know that we, um, so there was like when my first child was born, my spouse and I, he was long awaited. So mm-hmm. we were trying to figure out like, how do we want to document this? And right. people do videos and sure. da, da, da. but in the end, I just wanted that incandescent moment to only exist in that one moment in time. This is Weird Religion, a podcast for people who know religion is weird, but love it anyway. I'm Brian Doak. I'm a biblical scholar, author, professor, and if I die and Facebook is still a thing, please leave my profile alone. It is exactly how I want it to be, and no, you can't write on my wall. I disabled that because the birthday thing would ruin my aesthetic every year. I'm not having it. I'm Leah Payne. I'm a historian, author, professor, and I have a weird fascination with celebrity internet death hoaxes. That's a little weird. (laughs) Today we're doing a crossover episode with a new and exciting podcast called Bioethics for the People. Bioethics for the People is Dr. Devin Stahl, assistant professor of religion and a bioethicist at Baylor University and Dr. Tyler Gibb, co-chief of the Medical Ethics, Humanities, and Law program at Western Michigan University. Wow. So those other two people we're talking to, that's who they are that you'll hear and they are super impressive. Pretty serious and good company. Join us. Join us. Did, uh, we did record this over Zoom, uh, everybody. So the sound quality is decidedly z- uh, z- uh, zoomy. Zoomy is what <laughs> it is. That's a word. That's a word. <laughs> but as per usual, we start with a pop culture artifact, and then we go all weird and religious on it. Let's do it. So my question for all of you is, if you could have your consciousness be uploaded to any person, living or dead, who would it be and why? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you could have their body, their life. Like they're dead, so we're going back in time with this? Well, I'm just saying, you know, I didn't, I, if you, I, usually with academics, they want some sort of obscure philosopher or something from the 19th century. So. But I'm saying you'd have to, give you t- options. but I'm just saying you'd have to time travel for that. You know what I mean? Yeah, okay, well, yeah. I mean, like, sure, why not? Time travel's included. <laughs> 
so but your consciousness so the, is inside of them so do you have a double consciousness or are you just like uploading your brain into somebody that's what i was body? wondering that's that's what i was wondering am i them then or are they them but i'm also them <laughs> okay okay i think we're gotta all gotta clarify this, this. Okay, this is the most academic version of this. I feel like if we were all like at happy hour, you guys would just answer it. Don't even think. No, I don't think so. So I think <laughs> so I have so my answer would be like The Rock because the rock. Yeah, like somebody really really big and strong and then oh, I like Dwayne to... Dwayne The Rock oh, Johnson. Sorry, yeah. Dwayne, Dwayne Johnson. The rock Johnson because... Okay, it took me a second. I just didn't know. Yeah, I want that rock and bod and then he has, but he has like my sensitivity and my consciousness. So like, that's the best of all worlds, right? Oh, I love that. I love that. Mm-hmm. What about, what about you, Ty? I don't know that. Um... Or Tyler, do you go by Tyler? No, Ty's fine. Okay. Um... Great. Now we're going to have to edit that out. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> um, I don't know. I, I, I'm so, I'm freezing. <laughs> no, I, I don't. Um, my, my, my answer was going to be the rock also. Honestly. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> so weird. The rock? Uh, I'm still, I'm stuck hard. on the original question of like, am I me in the person's body or am I just like watching like a movie through the other person's eyes, what they are to me. That's not a scholar's thing. That's just like a normal, if we were all doing this in the pub, that would be question well, number one. If you're uploading your entire consciousness, yeah, it's you. It's you. You're still you. You're still Brian. Because I'd be like, oh, I'll be Jesus. And then I'm sitting here and I'm like in Jesus' body and I'm like, oh, wait, what am I doing? Like people are expecting these things of me. Now I can't tell if he really thinks he's the son of God because it's just me thinking. Like that's pointless. You just ruined Christianity by that answer. Like you just, like there is no more Christianity because you ruined Jesus. I know. Exactly. See, now that would be the kind of thing you'd want to ask. So, so I just take over their body and life. Yeah. 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 You know, I, I feel like we're, we're really like hovering around the, the crux of this entire episode, which is about the show upload, which has a premise of being able to upload your consciousness somewhere else that's not your body now the folks at bioethics for the people um had this show on their minds why did you all choose this particular show so i watched this show i think when it first came out so it's been a little bit yet but i loved i mean because there's so much like technology so much futurism and i think at the time i was writing about transhumanism which is this group of people who basically like they want to live forever, these transhumanists, and they're trying to figure out all sorts of ways to do that. And so one of the ways you could do that is to upload your consciousness. So there's a guy named Ray Kurzweil, who is mm. what we call like a futurist. And by we, I mean only people who call themselves futurists would, <laughs> would know what that term was because they sort of made it up. So It's sort of like the enlightenment, right? Like, yes. Made this up. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, we're, we're, I'm a scholar of the future, which is a weird thing to be a scholar of. Um, so there's all these people who are like trying to figure out how to live forever. And they tend to be like super rich, really like, like just kind of like I have everything in my life except immortality. And so there's all sorts of interesting ethics questions, especially bioethics questions that go with that, because whether it's like uploading your consciousness to live forever, or it's like tweaks to your physical body to have it kind of go on for a really long time, like, what does that mean for the rest of us? How could you do that ethically? Like, 
for me, that's like an inherently interesting bioethics question. Mm. Ty, are you watching this show too? Yeah, so I started watching after Devin told me to, but I've, <laughs> I've really enjoyed it. Um, yeah, I finished the, set, the, the first season and kind of, uh, I mean, it was tiny and lots of interesting things to, to, to talk about, but um, no, it was really good. I'd recommend it to anybody. One of the questions that I had when I was watching it, well, I, I quite enjoyed it myself too. I thought it was, in addition to being a fun intellectual ex exercise, I just thought it was cute, like the characters and stuff. Um, but one of the questions that I had was, you know, Dr. Stahl, Devin, uh, <laughs> to your point about, about um, transhumanism, which by the way, I don't know if you remember this um, to all of our listeners, but Dr. Stahl and I, one time, we used to have this contest. Do you remember where we would try and find the weirdest titled paper at a particular conference that oh, we go to? Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> academics are known for creating just like totally bizarre um, paper titles and then probably bizarre papers too. And one of the first, the first time, like I think the, the when I learned about transhumanism was it was some paper that asked the question like, is a human a toaster? or something like that. Mm -hmm. And then it was about transhumanism. And I was like, what is this? So then I learned some things I didn't know. But what are leave the it to, Leave it to the AAR to come up with something like that. Yeah, thank you, Academy, American Academy of Religion. Um, but one of the things that I thought of was like before technology, surely there were rich guys, most of their men are men, I assume, who were like trying to live forever. But what did they do before they could think about uploading their brains? Brian, is there like any ancient- like, Oh yeah, you just like, you cults? know, yeah, you could like visit like, you know, witches and take potions and stuff probably. I bet it didn't work that well. <laughs> well, like the Fountain of Youth, right? That's a big... Yeah, the, the Fountain of Youth and the looking for the gold and the stuff, you know, I think. Or, you know, um, well, actually one of the world's oldest epics, the Epic of Gilgamesh is actually one of its major themes is immortality through the idea, I guess it comes down to that your story would be written or told and that it could be the physical object of the story could be like buried within the city walls and a city wall would outlast you and thus your immortality is tied up into your city and in the telling of epic. I think that's also true for Homer as well, like the Iliad and the Odyssey. So I think those kinds of things are sort of like proto attempts at immortality. I, I mean, that seems right to me. Also just like even writing books in general, it's like three mm. people will ever read my book, but that book will be in a library probably for hundreds, of, oh, hopefully hundreds and hundreds of years. Collecting <laughs> thousands, thousands of years, millions of years. Does, is it true? Do you think it's true? Uh, bioethics for the people. This is a little off, off bioethics, but I think it's a sciencey thing. And to me as a non-science, you're the best scientist I know. Okay. So <laughs> that's fair. That's, that's fair. do you think, I mean, do you think that any piece of knowledge that exists now will ever be lost? ever, like aside from a complete extinction event of humanity and a complete destruction of the globe, every, every, every piece of book and knowledge and things, won't it just, won't everything just kind of continue? Like not hundreds of years, like millions of years, or as long as there's an earth or anything like people? Like, where would it go? It's not know. gonna go I, away. Yeah, well, I mean, you think about other cultures that we, that have been lost over time, right? I mean, they clearly had knowledge and information that we, don't have access to anymore, right? So like Stonehenge, like we, we we know it's there. We kind of know what the the point of it was, but I mean, kind of the the details and the the daily lives of those people that lived at that time, I think it's been lost. So, but they didn't yeah, have the I internet think, though. I, but they didn't have the internet, right? Yeah. They didn't have books, and they didn't have. I mean, they might have had books at Stonehenge, but like 
we have this this digital thing now, right? So I'm, I guess I'm asking, like, does does the digital world that we have now just keep transmuting and evolving to the point where everything that's on it now is always going to be there and just keeps like blossoming? Gosh, I hope not, but maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I've got some pictures I've tried to delete that I don't want anybody to yeah, find. Yeah, tell us, tell, tell us, tell us more about those pictures, Ty. What, what, what is that about? No. It's no. when you have that goofy curly hair, I think. When you, That's right. Remember when you used yeah. to have hair? I've seen some of those. Uh. Yeah, it, it turns out I do actually remember having hair, Devin. Thanks for. <laughs> for that. So. I have a question for you all about like so. The, the show, which maybe we should just kind of briefly state the premise, which is it's it's it is set in the very near future, wherein um, it's possible after you die, if you have enough resources, you can upload your consciousness into this sort of like supercomputer that may or may not be a pretty nice place. And they have all these clever ideas about like if you're poor, you have kind of a crappy place to live. And if you're rich, you have a really fancy place to live in our main character this you find this out in the first two minutes so it's not a spoiler is uploaded into this this new world and the question of course well i have a question i have two questions for you the one is like the the bioethics question like if you could should you and how do you even evaluate that and then also like how did you feel personally like thinking about the 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 premise of the show so Maybe the first, like, how should you do that? How does a bioethicist even evaluate that? Well, super subjectively. And then the answer is obviously no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, this is, yeah. it's, uh, it's an older bioethics question. Obviously, we can't do this. And we're like, not 13 years away from being able to do this as the show presumes, which is like a pretty funny, my guess is some of this is supposed to be funny. Like, this is only like, 13 years in the future and there's like flying cars and or self-driving there's a bunch of self-driving cars and like you can make food just appear from a 3d digital printer and and stuff that's like conceivable but surely not within the next you know 20 years that seems a little maybe like slightly off um like should you do it you you can just imagine people would want to do it but i mean I, i guess the question to like the religionists is you know, is this is this just like another version of the afterlife, or is this something totally different than what world religions are imagining as they sort of predict or anticipate what an afterlife means? Mm. Yeah, I think it's pretty different. Although, you know, this theme, I mean, right away, the first comparison show is obviously the good place, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's this idea that you're supposed to be in a heavenly place, but then you find out it's actually not great and, and there are problems and so on. But oh, like but there's that. a journey but there's a journey then that you're taking, you know. So it's a clear instantiation of that theme, but then also Black Mirror, which just That's has no the one I thought of, which has no humor. But I, there seems to be a genuine. I think with the loss, the general, you know, loss of enchantment, the disenchantment in the Weberian term of the world, the loss of religion, the loss of religious ideas about an afterlife, the loss of a centrality of an afterlife, even for very religious people who don't really think about it. I think all we have is like this vacuum of horror at the idea of an afterlife. Like we could laugh at it or we could be horrified by it. Black Mirror has a lot of these upload your consciousness horror themes, I think. But it's it's almost like it just can't be taken seriously. Like it either has to devolve into jokes or just us imagining you're living in a Taco Bell commercial, essentially, which is a running theme on upload. Or that it's just it's it's like a nightmare. Like it's like a horror film, like in Black Mirror. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, one of the things I'd like to I'd love to hear your thoughts on this 
Devin, is the just the the fact that like when you think about um, the whole concept of upload as a bodiless afterlife and a bodiless eternity, and I think that was the part. And maybe it's just because I I think that bodies are pretty great in a lot of ways. But I, I was sort of like, is that the the part that is giving me like the really bad feeling about this? Like there's something that just felt wrong, even though it's quite charming and there's some fun little scenes and stuff. And I was like, is that the fact? I mean, how, what do you think about that? I know you've written a lot about bodies and the self and how we ought to think about them like as mm -hmm. ethical sites. Yeah, I mean, for me, for sure. And I think that's inherently, at least my supposition is this is why this idea is not super attractive to women and people mm -hmm. with minority bodies is because um, we tend to put a lot of stock in our bodies and to think about them as like inherently part of who we are. And maybe there's a kind of a rich white man who doesn't feel that way. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know any of these people, but I, there must be some people who feel that way. But for me, it's like, no, who I am is really important. Like my body is really important to how I self-conceptualize. So even if it were a virtual body that felt real, that looked like my body should, you'd know that it wasn't your body. And for me, like, even if it, it just knowing that it was virtual would really like sort of ruin my sense of self. And so for me, like that, the disembodied part of it, and um, this is why transhumanism gets critiqued so heavily by so many people is like, and, and there's actually a, a classic uh, philosophy. I think it's kind of a bioethics question of like, or a situation of, of a head in a jar. And if this head in a jar kind of could experience the world, could still conceptualize and think, would you still be you if you were just a head in a jar? And mm. I would say no. Some people might say yes. They'd say, really, your consciousness is the only, it's the most important thing. It's what makes you you. And it's not your body. So I think that's sort of a, a debate in bioethics. But Tyler, do you think about that question as well? Um, yeah, I think the, the most interesting bioethics piece for me uh, was, so when we're making decisions for other people, particularly when people are like, you know, at the end of life in a coma and we're trying to make decisions like what grandma would want in this particular situation, right? We don't have access to grandma. And, and in the same way that it kind of, um, you know, we, we don't have access to people who have already died. Um, so we're doing a lot of speculation and a lot of kind of inferencing, but, um, what was interesting about the show is that it demystified kind of that that severance of somebody's continuity and we don't have access and we, we now have access to people who are dead and you know it was really it, it was funny how he would like be calling back to his like still living girlfriend and like interrupting her at the spa or like whatever and there's just keeping that connection and so um yeah that that that's really interesting so one thing that I that I study a lot or that I work on a lot is this idea of making decisions on behalf of somebody else, like proxy decision making. Like, how do we have access to what somebody's um, emotional state was when they said X, Y, or Z about what their treatment decisions would be, for example? And so, mm. um, I mean, that would be really interesting to actually have better information upon which to make decisions for for people. Um, but another part of the the show that I really loved was that. Um, that his continued existence in this uploaded area was contingent upon him keeping his kind of difficult girlfriend relationship intact, right? And so, um, yeah, that, that kind of played out in a lot of fun, fun ways. And there must well, be a... I... Sorry, go ahead, Leah. 
Is no, there no, 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 you go. Is there an interesting, I thought about this in terms of religion as well. Like, you know, do you, when you say till death, do you part? That's like, you're out. Like, at least I can <laughs> die and I don't have to be with my partner forever. <laughs> um, but if there's an afterlife, you know, and I think that there might be some things in the Bible about this, and I'm not sure about other traditions thinking about, are you still married in heaven? Are you still with your partner? And this poor guy, Nathan, like his girlfriend's kind of awful. And, and, and the reason he has to stick with her is because she's paying for it, which we should get into too, because mm. she is paying for him to have his consciousness remain in this resort in, hotel. In the nice one? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there's a really funny episode where where um, his he think he's gonna try and escape and it doesn't go super well because he doesn't have the financial resources to make sure that it hap or you know that he ends up in the good place, the goodish place. I I thought that the the okay I know that the girlfriend we're supposed to think that she's kind of awful because she's blackmailing him emotionally in terms of you know his his status, but I don't know. I kind of liked her in a weird, <laughs> weird sort of way. I, I, I found that there were some parts of it. So if you think about like how it would be to try and maintain a relationship with a dead person, I mean, it's not going to be easy. Right. So I, I, I found her more sympathetic than I thought I would, um, you know, as, as the show goes on. So maybe that's how they want us to think about it. Mm-hmm. Well, the show labors very hard to try to like, provide little quick expositional details about characters that will help you feel some kind of depth or sympathy. Many of those threads don't really go anywhere, but like they try to do it. Like they'll show, um, you know, the, like the customer service agent lady who then becomes the love interest of the guy who's uploaded. Cause like he has a customer service agent, right? Like somebody who's kind of guiding him through this experience while they show like, she used to have a roommate and there's like two beds, but where's the roommate? So it's like, you're well, left you like kind of watching. You have to keep watching. I know, but like you know. So I think I think it's in their interest as a show just to make everybody like a little bit complicated. Like, um, you know, the girlfriend is manipulative and whatever. But like, she's really you know. I mean, just the fact that she wants to be with him forever, like right away, and it seems almost kind of crazy eyed. Like, you know, that's like kind of beautiful. Like it's romantic. She wants to be with him forever. You know what I thought the part that gave me the part of the show that sort of gave me chills actually there's this horrific scene where um what what i thought was interesting was at the end of the day all the characters really truly do want to be embodied again right like Mm -hmm. the goal is to just this is like more of a purgatory type of a situation where you're like not no not even purgatory at all it's a liminal space right you're not trying to be like burned away limbo Uh, is that the limbo? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, it's like, it's like this in between space. But really, the goal is to someday be embodied again. And there's this awful scene where you see a character they're they're trying to make that happen. But I thought what was so fascinating was there's like this character who they're gonna try and like upload his soul back into or whatever his consciousness or whatever it is, back into a diff a, a body a redo of his body. And he has like this one tiny moment of like glory, knowing that he's like reconnected with his body before, mm-hmm. um, you know, hilarity, gruesome hilarity in, ensues. But <laughs> that I thought that was kind of interesting. I was like, oh, you know, I mean, I'm always thinking about what's the message that the writers and the director are, they're trying to tell us. They seem to see transhumanism as a danger, you think? Yeah, for sure. And, and late capitalism. 
right? So yeah. when you combine, and this is really like what is fueling a lot of transhumanism is, is a lot of these guys like work for Google and like Ray Kurzweil works for Google. Um, and so that sort of uh, connection between huge industry. So, and it'll be guys that work for Oracle and guys that work for Amazon who are funding these futurist projects to try to live forever. It's that combination of, you know, how to sell yourself like the, the capitalism of it and the technology of it forever in like the most dystopian way. I mean, I, to me, at least it, it, this is, it's funny and it's lighthearted, but it's also really, really sad. It's, it's definitely a dystopia. Nobody, it, does, oh, it's, it doesn't come totally. across as good. Totally. Yeah. Like, I mean the show, so the show is on Amazon prime. Amazon is like the biggest purveyor of this kind of like problem capitalism thing in many people's eyes. No comment from me. I've ordered something while we're doing the podcast here already. <laughs> um, so, but do you think they're doing product placement in the show for yeah, Amazon? For sure. For sure. so they're doing product yeah. placement for in sure. an Amazon show for Amazon, ridiculing the capitalism, like almost like with a bat over your head. Like, I mean, if I did, there's something I don't like about the show. It's just like shows that are so on the nose, like every second they have to remind you that like, this is what the show is about. This is what the show is about. Mm -hmm. Like you can never forget what the show is about, you know, in, yeah. and, and maybe there's something comedic about that. Like in the guy's first day in his uh, quote unquote afterlife, he's getting annoyed. Like he gets burned out really quickly because people are always trying to sell you things in the digital afterlife and so on. But like, mm -hmm. so granted, I, I understand that there's like a plot point to that. Never let you forget. But Amazon is like this too, right? Like they'll never let you forget like what you just looked at or what you must now order and all this kind of stuff. So it's like, I don't know, there's, there's, there was something that could feel creepingly gross about it as a show that like the show is making fun of something while they're also doing the thing. And you're like, ha, 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 ha. Um, <laughs> like, take, I don't know, is that, do you think that's too cynical? Yeah, I think yeah. it's beautifully cynical. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, it's, it's, it's totally like this meta experience, right? Where you're, where you're, like you said, you're engaging in the thing that they're tongue in cheek poking poking fun about, um, but but I think the writing is really good. I think I mean there were some like laugh out loud for me sitting in my basement by myself uh, quotes like like there's that one really rich guy who I think is supposed to be some sort of foil of uh, like Rupert Murdoch or somebody, and uh, he's he's paying for golf lessons for the for the main character, and he's like oh you know that's really expensive or whatever, he, and something along the lines of. He says, I've spent more on a majestic endangered parrot sandwich than whatever like I'm, I'm doing for you. And I was like, God, that's beautiful. I laughed out loud when he's with the dog and the dog is like, or he's talking to the dog and the dog talks back to him. There's like a talking dog, which is uh -huh. part of this world. And the dog's like, he's like something like, oh, it's weird or something. And the dog's like, yeah, it's only weird if you make it weird. Which yeah. I thought actually it was a great tagline for the show or the transhumanist idea. Like if you could just like yeah. get over it and just accept it, it wouldn't have to be weird or any kind of ethical problem, or you wouldn't have to be leaving your body or the material world. Like everything in some weird philosophical sense, isn't everything material. Like our, like even the digital world relies on these synapses of electrodes and things like that's a material, right? It's not, it's not a nothing. It's not the same kind of material as like your meat your meat suit that you're wearing, but it's like still material, you know? So like you could make it unweird, you know, like he could make, you know, so I thought, oh, that's a great tagline for the show. You know, it's only weird if you make it weird. 
Okay, well, I think other may maybe like early modern historians might be better equipped to to handle this. But this idea, like that, you can make a distinction. I don't know. Probably back to Descartes, or or maybe maybe somebody else. Um, like the idea that you would think that there is some essence that is extractable from your meat suit. Like that there's a difference between a mind and body. I, I think that that has got to be a distinctly modern idea. And I think the way that the show um, depicts like the monetization or the capitalization of that is like, I felt, and I want to hear what you guys think, like only in America, right? Like this idea that you would be so optimistic about it, like, and have a wholehearted embrace of, of this thing that is like when you sit down and really think about it i you know i guess it is only weird if you make it weird but to me it's just always going to be weird that that you would just be like yeah let's do this i don't know it felt it felt very like of our culture <laughs> That's what I felt. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. first of all meat suit great term uh, that's that and and a very romantic one i'll have to bring this up with my husband um that we'll just call <laughs> i love that meat yeah. suit um very gross <laughs> so there's a there's some actually like in clinical practice or at least in um in some of the things that we do or think about in the hospital settings, you do have to sometimes think about like, what is the most essential aspect of a person? So if you start uh, thinking about transplantation um, issues like this come up and, and this isn't sort of happening right now. So this would be true of like any transplant. Like some people think that they get like the essence of that person with their yeah. organs and how, how strange it is to sort of absorb yeah. another person that way. Um, but there's all these scientists who are trying to do, and they've been trying to do this forever, but head transplants. And the oh. kind of like deep question of the head transplant is, who, is it a head transplant or who is it a is body it? transplant? So it's like yeah. people, who, it, it generally is people who have their full consciousness, um, but who for some reason are um, dissatisfied with their bodies, maybe because of some sort of disability um, that they experience. And so they, they prefer to have a different kind of body. So could you, you know, take one person's head and put it on another person's body? And then would you be the same person? Like, could you have a totally new body and how disrupting that would be to your sense of self? Well, you just made it weird. You just made it weird for me. Yeah, it's never not going to be weird. But you, that makes yeah. me think of like um, TV shows where, or I mean, not TV shows, shows like studies that they, when they talk about like the people who have face transplants, mm -hmm. um, how, how they have a hard, <laughs> oh, yeah, <laughs> that's no, a whole Nicholas other Cage. Yeah, yeah, I love it. Um, but, you know, like how they have a hard time looking at themselves at first. And I wonder if you can ever get used to it because I don't, I don't know. That would be a really strange thing to be like, not only, you know, say if you have a terror, your, your face, um, you have an injury on your face. I can see how you would be like, I have to get used to the new me, but it would be your features that have been um, injured in some way. But what, versus someone else who's no longer living's nose. Or are they still yeah. living? That's really intense. No, they, so they wouldn't be living anymore. The the donor of the face. Well, um, I mean, I mean, are so, they still living because they're connected to your body? Oh, I see. Yeah. Um, you so lost the nuance. Th there, there haven't. <laughs> yeah. So there haven't been that many face transplantations that have been successful enough to kind of study this. Oh. But one area of transplant that has that has is hand transplants. And um, you think about, they, they try to match tone and pigment, but at no point are, are they gonna be closely matched enough that you're gonna look at that hand and be like, 
that's my hand, right? It's always an, an, it's an othering, right? And because you can see it and you use it every single day, it's different than like a kidney where, I mean, it's in there, it's working, you forget about it and it just kind of gets absorbed into who you are. But, but hand transplants, actually, they have the highest rate of people wanting to, to self-reject or to want that removed after the fact because it's such an wow. othering experience like that. You I wonder what? what's, what's, what's the state of the science around so it's one thing to have like a hand that's chopped off or whatever, and you just get another hand and it's like Luke Skywalker, you know, you've got the hand. I think, man, I just, I wish the science was better where it's like, couldn't we trick our bodies into just growing another hand? Like you grow from a fetus, right? And you grow things out and you grow teeth. Like, is that a thing? Is anyone working on this to try to just grow a new thing? Yeah. So we do this with pigs. So we will grow human ears on the backs of pigs. Oh. And then we'll transplant those. People have all sorts of issues with this too, right? It's like the chimera research. So, um, you know, is it? are you now like part pig? This is probably not true of like ears, but there's some like sort of um, ways we're starting to have little brains that are growing in other animals. Yeah. Um, and, and if you have human uh, brain cells growing in other animals, could that somehow develop consciousness in other animals? And that like totally freaks people out. I yeah. bet. Yeah. And another issue is that, so, so not to get too down, too far down the, the, the science rabbit hole of this, but the cells that's, that have the potential to become other types of cells, right? Um, so they're called pluripotent or meaning that they can, they can become any type of other cell in your body, right? Those are fetal cells. And the ways in which we harvest fetal cells is usually through, through abortions or elective terminations, right? And that opens up a whole nother bag of um, you know, can of worms as far as like from a religious perspective about when and how and if, and if it is happening, then what are my obligations to participate or not participate? Mm. It sounds like in some ways, I mean, these kind of questions, ah, man, it, it, it makes it sound as though in order to navigate the next, say, 13 years or 100 years, <laughs> um, you know, people are going to have to be part of communities that are very much like religious communities, even if they're not religious or say they're not, in order to make value judgments about what of all this is okay and what's not. I don't see where you would get a template of meaning to know what to do. Yeah, I, I'm curious about that too, because when you brought up the fetal cells, that reminded me of this current conversation that's going on right now about COVID-19 vaccines and how they're developed and whether or not, you know, like evangelical Christians are going to be okay with, um, fetal cells being used to develop them. And so I, I, one question that I have, like at least historically, is those kinds of even public conversations about ethics are typically done at least, well, actually, Devin, you could probably tell us, but they've been done in conversation, at least, if not exclusively within a religious community, right? I mean, I think traditionally that would be true. And, and bioethics was actually a field started by theologians who were more or less quickly pushed to the sidelines as irrelevant in the conversation, um, oh, which is a whole interesting other history. But um, yeah, I mean, I think that so theologians were kind of the public intellectuals that were respected enough to start thinking about how technology after World War II, healthcare technology was shaping the way we think about the differences between life and death and how long somebody should live in a state that maybe is not optimal. So when, it's only once you develop those technologies that you have to ask those those kinds of questions. Um, today, it'll 
you know, and, and Tyler, you can tell me your experience, but when I get with a group of, of like sort of hard scientists, so they, they're doing hard science and then they're having to think about the implications of that science, they tend to want to pass the buck to bioethicists or other people to say, hey, I'm just a scientist. Uh, oh. You know, I can't, I don't have to think, I don't need to think about the ethics of this, which is a bizarre thing to say because they're already developing it. And so then bioethics is sort of like an afterthought. And then we're like the naysayers if we say that you shouldn't do this, which is pretty unfair. Yeah. Um, but but that idea of like, they're just going to be hands off. They're just going to do what they're going to do. And then other people have to evaluate whether it's right or wrong. Um, a lot of, mm-hmm. I'm not saying this is true of all scientists, but a lot of the ones I meet will kind of try to pass that off. And so then they'll maybe sometimes invite ethicists and other stakeholders to public events or public conferences where they want to get their input. Um, but they themselves don't necessarily have the training or even the desire to try to figure out the ethics of the things that they're working on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's almost like they live so much in the can I world. Can it be done? Can I do it? That um, they just offload all of the really messy should I questions to to somebody else, which I think is just kind of a you know an abrogation of their of their responsibilities as. You know, scientists and people seek, seeking for truth. But yeah, that's totally been my experience as well. I don't want to be um, in any way diss the many fine women and men who are like doing excellent scientific work on behalf of all of us. But it reminds me of Dr. Frankenstein and I, like it, it, Mary Shelley's character, right? Like, and I, I, I just uh, reread that book not too long ago. I love creepy stories. Can't get enough. Um, but uh, what I thought was so fascinating was how the character of Dr. Frankenstein is depicted with such optimism and naivete um, about this enterprise and then comes to gr- to regret it. But I, I wonder, uh, so then I was thinking like, okay, that's an iconic story of like a certain era. What are the stories that we're going to be telling like a hundred years ago about now like is upload the kind of story that we will tell do you think so you want us to be futurists <clears throat> yeah be futurists. be futurists and try to figure out what the yeah, future people will say oh gosh i mean i do think that there's a lot of things that we're doing that you know are very controversial to people like us um i mean like xenotransplantation so what, what we're doing with animals um i hate that that's I mean the fetal cell lines is always a controversial issue, but just for some people I think that kind of gets dismissed as it's actually not that many people if you survey Americans who actually have an issue with this. Um, mm-hmm. It's a surprisingly few amount of people who like won't take a vaccine if it were made from fetal cell lines. Um, that's a, I don't know what else Tyler what else do you think are like kind of the hot button things? Um, definitely like the artificial intelligence and, um, you know, artificial, you know, cognitive enhancement device stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that, that's, I think that's really where a lot of the edge technology interfacing with the, the ethics is, you know, if I put a, some, some little probe or something electrode in my brain and it changes how much empathy I feel or, um, you know, my solidarity with my community. Um, in predictable ways, in predictable and manipulable ways, then um, you know, what does that say about me as an individual within that community? Oh, yeah. If you guys don't, you're probably not part of this conversation because I feel like it's such an insider bioethics conversation, but like moral enhancement. So there's like 
you know, drugs you could take or implants you could put in your brain that some people think would make you like a more moral person? According to whose definition of moral? Exactly, right? So you'd have to have a, Whoa. we'd have to actually agree on that to begin with. But of course, you just like obviate that. You just push that question aside and say, well, gosh, but there are some things like, there are some, some guys who think that like you could eradicate racism because it's probably just a pathway in your brain. And if we could find it and like block it, then maybe we wouldn't be racist anymore. And then when you're like, I'm not sure that's a good idea, they go, well, what, you wanna be racist? You're a racist. <laughs> right, right, yeah. You know, it's funny. You must I, love racists. And... I, I, I would imagine one of the problems that comes up with this stuff is like, until like a thousand years passed and we know like everything or something, you don't know, like for instance, blocking some kind of gene that makes you not a racist. It also like cancels like, any affinity for your family or, you know, something like that. Like if these things are connected in some kind of way that we don't really understand, that would get really confusing. That would be so confusing. And I was thinking though, of like when you talk about augmentation, I was thinking about the, re the revulsion, the repulsion people had against the Google glasses. You know, everyone's fine with a phone in their hand, but as soon as you put it, like, oh, it was like as, as soon as like people hated the Google glasses, right? Because it always felt like there was this creepy sense that someone was not looking at you or they were looking at this other thing or, it just like crossed this barely too much line between holding something like in your hand and, and, and accessing it versus like, it almost becomes like a part of your body, the way that glasses wears their glasses. Like for me, people just like, you take off your glasses and they're like, put your glasses back on. Like that's you, you know, or something. Glasses are even a technology like that, I guess, which become part of your body, part of your face. So. I was wondering about that. Like who, you know, what is the threshold? What's our, what will be our tolerance level? I think, from our perspective, I mean, most of us were probably raised with before the interweb and then now like we're in this whole new world. And I sort of wonder, like it, maybe from our perspective, it seems like there is no threshold, but maybe a hundred years from now, people will recognize that there was like that. I remember years ago that Apple made um, like a laptop or maybe it was a, um, what, what are the non-laptops? What were those called? whatever desktop Desk, computer desktop. <laughs> that, but the problem with it was that it looked too much like a human head and it freaked people out, you know? So like, maybe there's some sort of there, there actually are boundaries, but we can't really imagine it right now. And maybe, maybe we're living in a time that's teaching us that. I mean, I know I'm sick to death of zoom and it probably seemed like five years ago that zoom would take over the world, but I cannot wait to be face to face with people again. Yeah, I mean, I think that's what's so hard about prediction is that it's so things happen usually pretty gradually. And so you like learn to accept one thing, then you learn to accept the next. And then there are these like things that will throw up a roadblock, like the Google glasses. And maybe it was just like ahead of its time. And maybe if we wait 50 more years, an idea like that will come back and we'll be more accepting of it because we've like moved a little bit each way. Um, but there's a concept, I wonder if this applies, of the, the valley of the uncanny which is more of an aesthetic concept of um, if you're making like dolls or anything that looks human, it's like fine to make it look not human at all and like kind of human. But if you make it look too human, it like really creeps people out. So you have to like get right up to the edge of not too human. Um, so you get as close as you can, but if it just crosses that little threshold and it's impossible to say you know, exactly where that threshold is, but people know it when they see it. And they go, oh, and it just creeps you out. So there is like some sort of threshold. It's just that it's really hard to define. Well, like those creepy baby dolls that you sent me a link to once. 
Wasn't oh. it you? I don't yeah. remember. They're, they're really <laughs> creepy. They're really creepy. Well, I feel like that's a good note to end on. Creepy baby dolls. <laughs> <laughs> That was fun. It was. I'm, you know, to be honest though, I'm really haunted by the ears on the pig thing. (laughs) Sweet dreams, everyone. (laughs) In the words of my toddler, night night. Hey, thanks for listening, weirdos. Why did you say it so derisively? Uh, It's a compliment. (laughs) It is. For extras on subjects covered in this episode and other related jokes and miscellany, do not forget to follow us on the socials and visit our website, weirdreligion.com. This episode was produced by Leanne Drain and Ryan Smoke at our new studio space, The Bunker. Our theme music is by Cassie Blum and our artwork is by John Williams. A special shout out to the Wabash Center for Teaching and Learning in Theology and Religion for their support for these new episodes. Remember when you podcast, podcast with us. 